Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Hello, welcome along. Ahoy, it's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly, the smartest show in the entire universe. My name's Dan. Thanks so much for finding us, for listening, downloading, streaming, following. This is where we search out some of the science secrets lurking all around the place, right to the far end of the galaxy, like the really freezing parts And we just try and explore and see what that means. This week, you can hear all about the hottest part of the ocean. Also, why some smart scientists are trying to drill a hole into the South Pole. Uh, And we'll get an update on when humans are finally going back to the moon. It's coming up. Plus, your questions today, they are on poison, popping and plates. Right now, let's catch up with one of our favourite geniuses on the show. That isn't me, it isn't you. It's a Sydney McSprocket. Sir Sidney McSprocket's Great British Minds. Oh, hello. Sir Sidney McSprocket here. I wonder if you're like me, someone who's curious about the world and who likes coming up with new ideas. If you are, you're not alone. Britain has a proud history of great minds and a proud history of celebrating them. Back in 1851, a great exhibition was held in London to show the world all the latest inventions and innovations. And one of the stars of the show was the J. Harrison Power Loom. You see, for many years, cloth was woven by hand and needed many people to operate the machinery. Power looms, which were driven by steam, could weave double the amount of cloth, with fewer people needed. Of course, this wasn't good news for the weavers, many of whom lost their jobs. But it revolutionised industry, with factories able to turn out more cloth than ever before to be sent to every corner of the globe by rail and sea. Victorian Britain ran on steam, and Mr Harrison was fascinated by this steam power and learned as much as he could about it to improve the looms and processes that already existed. Today, factories that weave cloth still use mechanised looms, although they'll be powered by electricity and operated by computers. Not much call for steam power, unless you're ironing the cloth, I suppose. That's the way of things when creative and curious people put their ideas to work and with a multitude of minds inventing and designing all the time, progress continues to take staggering leaps forward. Another 21st century great British mind I'd like you to meet is Owashe Sosanya. He's a design engineer who designed a machine that can weave thread in three dimensions. Can you imagine? Sasanya started the same way as Harrison, being interested in how weaving was done in the traditional way and thinking about how to improve the process. 
This curiosity resulted in an invention which is generating totally new and unique materials. The machinery builds the material up a little bit like a 3D printer layer by layer. It can weave threads to create flexible, open grid-like structures which might be useful for the sole of a shoe, or tougher polymers that can weave tightly packed material for things like bulletproof jackets. And Sasani is showing no sign of stopping. He's also created a new computer program which will help users make and create their 3D models using virtual reality. Imagine that! Although it occurs to me that if we all end up living in virtual reality, maybe we won't need clothes at all. Now, if you're the curious sort, perhaps you'd make a great British mind too. Who knows what you might create or improve upon? I'm certainly curious. For example, I'm absolutely desperate to know what will happen if I plug my kettle into my new generator accelerator. <laughs> hmm, I wonder. Oh, tea's ready in record time. Got to go. Now, where are my tea cakes? Sir Sidney McSprocket's Great British Minds. With support from the Royal Commission 1851. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash mixprocket. Right, let's get to your questions. My favourite part of the show, where you send me on a little science digging mission. I don't need to get my hands dirty with any mud. I have to search out the answers to your questions, the science stuff that's rattling around your head. If you've got something, leave it as a review for me on Apple Podcasts. Uh, First up is Isaac the Newton. Brilliant name. You've got a lot to live up to with a name like that. Uh, who wants to know, what's the most poisonous animal in the world? It's hard to say, definitely, Isaac, because uh, animals' poison works in different ways. It does different things at different times, at different speeds. It's hard to test all of them on one person, for obvious reasons. But scientists have done their best and decided that the most poisonous animal in the world is probably the box jellyfish. It's large, but almost see-through in the water. Now, its tentacles hang down. There are a lot of them. They sting you using millions of nematocysts that jab venom into your body. And it's hugely venomous, causing you to be paralysed, and then it can even cause you to die. That's why the box jellyfish is probably the most poisonous animal in the world. Thank you for that, Isaac. This one is from Clem, who's seven, who wants to know, why why do your ears pop in planes and when you yawn? Now, it's all to do with air pressure, which is the amount of air squeezed into one place. In your ear, behind your eardrum, you've got a little bit of air trapped there, and it's almost sealed, so it's really hard for it to get out. Now, sometimes when you're travelling up high, that build-up of trapped air starts to hurt, because the higher you go, really the less air there is, so there's more air in your ear than there is out of it. And that balance, the balance of pressure... Like a, like a seesaw, it kind of becomes unequal. You need to level it out. When you yawn or when you open your ear a bit, some air gets let free to equalise the pressure. And when it gets free, it makes a popping sound. That's what you hear. Thank you for the question, Clem. Lastly, from Marley, who's in Mozambique. Marley always asks incredible questions. Keep sending them to me, Marley, whenever you can. Uh, what makes earthquakes? 
Now, the world is made of things called tectonic plates, these huge chunks of rock that fit together like a jigsaw. Underneath those are loads of like molten rock and gases and liquids. And these are all bubbling around each other all the time. And that makes those tectonic plates sometimes move. And when they slide next to each other, these thick chunks of rocks that are millions of miles wide, the grating makes earthquakes. It's literally the earth sliding into each other. Thank you for the question, Marley. If you've got something you want answered next week on the show, leave it as a review for me on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. We're looking at one of the most beautiful things in the wild today. Uh, but you might not know it because you might be terrified of looking at them because of what hangs around on them. So you might stay away. Uh, it's the secrets of spiders' webs. Now, Andrew Gordas is a behavioural biologist in the Krieger School of Arts and Sciences. He's over in America now and he joins us to tell us more. Andrew, hello. Hello. Now, uh, I I just said, like spiders and spiders' webs kind of freak people out a little bit. What made you study them? What made you look at them in so much detail? Well, I was um, in Central Park with my son one day and I saw an incredibly beautiful web and I was really attracted to the beautiful geometry of it. And I thought, wow, a creature with a tiny brain built that web, which I thought was amazing because if you saw a chimpanzee in a zoo build a similar web, you would think, wow, that is a really talented chimpanzee. But this is even more amazing because it's built by an animal with an incredibly tiny brain, which I think is very impressive. So I wanted to understand how an animal with a tiny brain makes such a beautiful web. Uh, so how did you come to understand it? What was the very first thing that you did when you thought you'd try and study spiders' webs? So if I want to understand how they build this web, the first thing I needed to understand was what are the actions they perform when they build the web? For example, if I want to know how a ballerina Perform, does her performance, I need to learn all the moves first. So it turned out um, no one had really systematically gone through and documented all these movements and rules before. So we built an infrared camera setup to watch the spiders at night. And then we trained a computer to track its, the spider's legs for hours and hours. And then we used a lot of math to model the different rules the spider performs when building a web. Uh, how long does it tend to take a spider to make a web? It's one of those strange things where it feels like it's ages, but suddenly they're there. That's a good question. I guess it depends a little on size. They spend a long time trying to decide to build the web. They do a lot of testing of the area. For example, you want to do a lot of testing outside because if you build your web on a weak branch and it falls, you just wasted your whole evening building a destroyed web. So that first part of web building can take hours. But once they decide to build a web, depending on size, it can take about one to two hours. Now, we've kind of, this might be a little bit outside of what you've learned, but I thought I'd throw it to you. There's so much in the wild where a creature can make a nest where they can live, you know, up on trees, down below grounds. Why do you think spiders make webs? Why is that their first form of making a habitat? That's a great question. Um, it turns out 
many spiders, in fact, the first spiders that appeared on Earth, don't build webs. They uh, use their silk to make little egg sacs. So only some spiders build webs. Um, we're more aware of them because we can see the webs. It's harder for us to see all the little spiders crawling along the ground. So some spiders evolved um, web building because they're capturing uh, flying insects. So spiders that live on the ground have a lot of trouble capturing flying insects, but spiders that build webs can um, uh, use those flying insects as a food source. So we think they evolved that so they can take advantage of all those tasty meals flying around in the sky. So I'm a spider. I'm on the edge of a plant, something like that. Uh, what's the first, I want to build a web. What do I do? What's the, how do I make it happen? You mentioned the rules that you train your computer to look for. Uh, what's the very first thing that I do? How do I get my first bit of silk into the air and make it stick to summit? What they do um, outside is a little bit different than what they do on the web. Outside, they can take advantage of the fact there's always a tiny little breeze. And they often release a little bit of silk and the silk kind of floats in the air and they kind of um, repeatedly pull on it a little bit, kind of like if you cast your line going fishing, you kind of tug on it a little bit to see if something caught. Well, they do the same thing. And eventually the silk catches on something and they'll tug on it and they um, think, oh, it caught something. And then they'll anchor it and they'll walk along it and try to see, well, how far is that distance? And they'll walk back and forth. And if it seems like it's a, a decent distance, then they'll start using that first line as an anchor point for building the rest of their web. How much thought is there into it, uh, Andrew? When you imagine Spider-Man who flicks these webs out of his wrists, he does it with real purpose. I want to go there. Uh, you said that the spider takes quite a long time deciding whether or not to make a web. Is it perched there looking for things that it can connect to? Uh, or just, just kind of you know, flick this silk into the air and just fingers crossed, well, you know, eight legs crossed that it kind of latches onto something? I like to think that all animals have a basic level of thinking that they do. The, the challenge with the spider is that these spiders really don't use their eyes very much for building the web. It's all based on touch. And so when they're testing out areas, it's thought that they're trying to assess, well, how good of a place is this, is this to build the web? Where are all the good anchor points? So it's not they're trying to learn about their environment. But even when they're building a web, it's not just this reflexive behavior like a robot, like I'm going to build a web. They are constantly assessing the quality of the web and trying to correct uh, mistakes. So I would say it's a fairly cognitive process, meaning they're, they're doing a considerable amount of thinking while they build the web. In the whole process of a spider making a web and, and what you thought you would find when you originally saw them in, in, the, uh, in the zoo or whatever it was, uh, in Central Park, sorry, uh, was there anything that su surprised you about your findings about how spiders made webs, something that you would never, ever consider them to do? Yes. The, prior to our experiments, um, the main idea in the field was that the spider goes through certain phases of web building, kind of like phases of building a house. You build a foundation, the frames, the walls, etc. Spiders do something similar. Um, and many of our spiders did progress through these stages to build the web. But many would start a stage, and then they would cycle back and go back to a prior stage, and then continue again. And we were fairly surprised by how, um, how flexible they were 
when it came to these stages. So I think that once again shows that they're not just strictly like a robot going through stages of web building, they're constantly assessing and deciding, you know what, I should go back and make a few corrections and then continue again. And we were surprised by how frequently we observed that. What's going to happen with your findings now? You've uh, researched this. Is, is it just going to sit in a, in a paper, in a book somewhere, in a library, or is something else going to happen with it? That's a great question. This is the first step in trying to understand how the web is built. Ultimately, I would like to know how the web is encoded in the brain. Because ultimately, the web is a record of what the spider was thinking. A long time ago, back in the 50s and 60s, a, um, uh, a researcher named Peter Witt gave a variety of different drugs to spiders, like caffeine or a variety of other things. And it really changed the structure of the web. And that is a record of these drugs changing the spider's thought process. So now we would like to do the same thing and ask, well, how does the behavior change that ultimately um, created the web? Um, because we think the chemical pathways in the brain, the chemicals in your brain that are used for affecting different states. For example, we have states like hunger or fear. Um, many of these states are encoded by chemicals. These drugs target these chemicals in the brain. And we would like to know how these chemicals are used to organize the structure of the web. So we think the web is ultimately a record of these changing chemical states in the brain. And we would like to know how that happens. That's amazing. Andrew Gordas, thank you so much for coming on, for getting up early, for coming on and telling us more. Thank you for inviting me. I had fun. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! This week's Dangerous Dan is all about the hottest patch of water in the world. You'll find it deep down at the very bottom of the Atlantic Ocean in a line of underwater mountains called the Mid-Atlantic Range. Uh, it's about 3,000 metres beneath sea level and it's very strange. Cracks in the Earth's crust make hot spots where magma molten rock that is from deep down in the planet under those tectonic plates we were talking about earlier uh, well cracks in those plates mean the magma kind of bubbles up to the surface it manages to get free and it hits water and it boils at a very high temperature these are called hydrothermal vents now the hottest water in these vents come out of two cracks called two boats and sisters peak the water that's around these vents can reach 867 degrees Fahrenheit, deep under the ocean, where this molten uh, rock that's from the centre of the Earth, where it meets the water, it heats it up to 867 degrees Fahrenheit. It's hotter than the surface of Venus, and Venus is the hottest planet in the solar system. Thing is, these are volcanoes, right? It's weird. These are volcanoes that you think are millions of years old, uh, but they're only about 20 years old quite young when we're talking about volcanoes 
That's today's dangerous Dan. Well deserves its place on our list. It has the hottest patch of water in the world. It's the two cracks, two boats, and Sisters Peak. Time to catch up with another one of our favourite geniuses on the show right now. This is Karina and her strange, sciencey alter ego, K Mystery. K Mystery, chemistry and climate. My dad's talking about getting an electric car. He says it will help reduce air pollution and tackle climate change. But I'm not sure how these things are connected. Hi, Karina. Sounds like a chemistry conundrum to me. Your superhero alter ego at your service. Oh, hey, chemistry. Can you help me put it all together? Well, pollution in the atmosphere traps heat causing the Earth's temperature to rise. So reducing levels of air pollution is right at the heart of climate challenges we are facing. And pollution is generally, well, just rubbish, isn't it? Literally rubbish. It's a problem that's causing harm right now in lots of ways. Millions of people die each year as a result of air pollution. So by improving air quality, we can save lives right now. But unlike rubbish that might be dropped on the streets, we normally can't see air pollution. So how do we know it's doing harm? Well, scientists have done lots of research and found that even small levels of pollution in the air we breathe can cause serious health problems. Sometimes things are quite visible. Welcome to the Acropolis here in Greece. Like many old buildings across the world, the stonework is slowly being eroded by pollutants like sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide that we create from our factories and vehicles. Whilst here in the Amazon rainforest, other pollutants such as ground-level ozone, affect vegetation and reduce the amount of crops that can be grown. Oh, it sounds impossible to change anything. There's so much to do. Nothing's impossible. Not when you've got chemists on the case to help figure out solutions. Come on, I'll show you. When you think about it, air is all about chemistry. It's made up of gases and particles of different chemicals. In fact, it's a right carnival of chemistry. My guess, but not that sort of carnival. Chemicals naturally react with other chemicals to create other substances. And these include pollutants like ozone. Then there are other air pollutants that are more man-made, like sulfur dioxide. And the biggest human contributors to air pollution are fossil fuel power stations, our transport network and factories, and not forgetting, heating our homes. So, understanding how all these things fit together can help us find solutions. Exactly. For example, chemists have created a master chemical mechanism. Uh, you what? But it's just a way to describe some of the chemical reactions that take place in the lower atmosphere. It helps those that make laws test how effective the changes they're planning would be, so they can choose the best plan. Did you know that chemists have discovered that trees are a source of high levels of organic pollutants during heat waves? 
Trees? I thought trees were the good guys. Well, trees are just trees, doing their tree thing. They do a whole bunch of great stuff reducing carbon in the atmosphere. But tree pollen can make the air quality poorer. There's loads of different stuff that we need to know to plan and stay healthy. Some chemists work to monitor air quality, helping find connections and causes. There's a network of 300 air quality monitoring sites across the UK, measuring a range of pollutants. So, where would my dad's new electric car come in? Let's get back on the road. Through their work, chemists can help us clean up the air around roads, from inventing cleaner fuels to better batteries for electric vehicles, so fewer fossil fuels and minerals are used. For petrol and diesel vehicles, they developed catalysts and filters to reduce pollutants that are released. So, cleaner car, cleaner air, and a cooler planet. And it's not just cleaner cars. Some chemists are working on new fabrics so that the clothes we wear help purify the air. And buildings can play their role too. Using better building materials as well as plants can help improve air quality, keep buildings cool in the summer and warm in the winter, and make things, well, look nicer. And we're back. Well, thanks for the insight, chemistry. No problem. Always happy to help with a chemistry challenge. Online, you'll find a cool experiment where with just a few plastic plates, some tape, Vaseline and a magnifying glass, you can check out the air quality in your own home. Why not check it out? Chemistry, Chemistry and Climate, with support from the Royal Society of Chemistry. Find out more and get hands-on with chemistry at funkidslive.com slash chemistry. Time for this week's Science in the News. A project is getting underway to drill a huge bit of ice in Antarctica because it will hold a record of Earth's climate stretching back 1.5 million years. It's almost three kilometres long, this block of ice, and when, more, when water melts and freezes, and it's happened loads of time with this ice, scientists can figure out when ice ages happen and they can learn more about how our climate's changed and what might happen in the future. Also, heading into space. The first NASA mission to put humans back on the moon for 50 years has been pushed back one year to 2025. They haven't got enough money to do it just yet. Everyone's feeling the pinch of it, so they are waiting on getting it, saving up to build what they need. It's called the Artemis Programme, and NASA are also looking to send the first woman into space with it in a few years' time. And finally, staying in space, the James Webb Telescope, we've spoken a lot about this over the last few weeks, is on track finally to launch in a few weeks' time. It's the new Hubble Telescope. It costs $10 billion. It'll be fired into space to take pictures of the oldest stars in the universe. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. If there's something science you want answered on the show next week, leave it as a review for me on Apple Podcasts. Uh, while you're on there, it's the best place that you can hear loads of our brilliant podcasts. We've got tons of them there for you. Uh, we've also got them on the free Fun Kids app at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Hear us all around the country on your DAB digital radio on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. 
Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!